Okay, next we come to the reading the word. And I'm, I'm going to pray a prayer of illumination for us before I read it. But I guess I want to say that if you have the same reaction I do when you get to certain parts of the passage I'm about to read, and you should find that you are suppressing a loud amen or hallelujah, you should feel free not to suppress that. Because there are, you know, the scripture is pretty darn amazing, but every once in a while it just plows right into you. And that's in this passage. So let me pray. Father, as we come to your word, open our hearts and minds to receive it with gladness. And in the days to come, let us recognize we truly have been fed heavenly food. Bless Matt as he preaches the word, and Jesus, may you be glorified. Amen. This passage is from Galatians 2, 11 to 21, and they very graciously gave us something with a font that you could see in the back row. Here you go. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. So we also have to believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Praise be to Christ. Amen. We're going to be looking at um, Galatians all fall, and it is an odd book. You're going to hear the word circumcision a lot, and parents, you're welcome. It's a safe place to begin those conversations, and I'm sure your car ride home will be fruitful. And I say that because it's in the book a lot of times, and sometimes we can look at the Bible and think, here's this old book, and... If we're reading, I think, with care, we might wonder, why is this book in the scriptures? These are not all of the letters written amongst the churches and by even the apostles and the disciples in the first century. There are others. I got a degree in religious studies from the University of Missouri. It was a very responsibly done degree, and I read some other letters. Perhaps maybe not written by who they said they were, but the church rejected them as not uh, being 
the word, the God-breathed word. The church rejected them as, as not representing Christ's life and words. They would go and interview the people who met the risen Christ, who didn't believe in him, like James, referenced here in Galatians 2. This is not James the disciple. This is Jesus' brother. We talked about this last week. Cold told him he was crazy and needed to stop talking to people twice, at least. There are other letters, and they're not included. And yet here's this one that's including this conflict that we partially understand— and would have been just as bothered by as Paul was, though we might not have opposed him to his face. Every once in a while, somebody says to me, no one likes conflict, right? And I'm like, actually, some people really like conflict. I think Paul was one of them. That's why I opposed him to his face. That's why later in this book, he's going to get really aggressive in talking to the Galatians about how dangerous and destructive the teaching that they had at least partially bought into was. And at the end of the section, Paul's going to say, Paul does say, then Christ died for no purpose if it's Jesus plus my engagement with religious ceremony. Then Jesus died for no purpose. So through some religious hypocrisy, we have Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's a group of churches, and they were listening to a teacher. We're going to get into this more next week who's teaching them. Trust Christ, and you must perform and engage in these religious ceremonies. And to Paul, that turns the gospel into a non-gospel, into not good news, into something of bondage and not of freedom. And Paul says, and this is what I think he's getting at in the trickiest verses in the section 17 through 19, in our own lives, when we come to believe that our adoption of religious ceremony or religious activity merits something before God, I know that's a long sentence, hang with me. When we believe and live like our actions make us right before God, we're nullifying the good news in our own life, to our own mind, to our own emotions, to our own being. Paul's agenda throughout his letters is to notice and encourage that which supports and fosters community, spiritual friendship. And when something fractures spiritual friendship and community, he starts waving his arms rhetorically. In the Corinthian church, what was fracturing their community was sin, which is a little bit easier for us to understand. In the Galatian community, what was fracturing the community was a religious hypocrisy born out of these bad teachers who were saying, you're half saved until you adopt these ceremonies, which were probably, it was probably more than one ceremony, though Paul zeroes in on the one. And if you've read the New Testament, sometimes... Paul can seem overly harsh. Sometimes he can seem overly gentle. His agenda is consistently, this is harming the community, or this is encouraging community, keep it up. In the Corinthian church, there was a man who was sleeping with his stepmom, and his dad was sitting in the room, and Paul's like, pagans don't even live this way, stop it. In Galatia, they're believing that these ceremonies that was dividing the church was harming not only their faith, because that's a non-gospel, Jesus plus, 
but also the community. Paul's agenda is, what does the community of Christ followers look like? How do I encourage its flourishing and strongly discourage anything that fractures community? So, what he saw in verses 11 through 14 is something that would bother us. You're coming to the church, we have a fellowship lunch, we're all willing to eat with one another because that's part of spiritual community is actually getting to know one another better, eating together. And then you come back and we have this new person teaching that unless we adopt this specific kind of prayer or worship, we shouldn't actually fellowship with one another. So now, some of us are not willing to sit at table with one another. I realize that's a big stretch because it's the 21st century and things function differently. But if you saw someone eating with someone and then you saw them refuse to eat with them and you knew that it was because of the way they practiced their religion, it would bother you. And it should bother you. And it's why Paul's so upset. If you're like, you posed him to his face. Why is he so riled up? Because first of all, that's implying a non-gospel. Second of all, it's hurting the community. And he's even acknowledging that, that Peter's calling in the world was to reach followers of God that were not yet trusting Jesus as Messiah. But he's also pointing out his hypocrisy. And his hypocrisy leads to some of the most profound verses we have in the New Testament telling us about life in Christ and life in the Spirit. And it came about through a simple meal. This is one of my better meals. My oldest daughter is convinced that the right way to roast potatoes is cut side down. And you can argue with her if you want. I think she's right. There's a dill sauce to go along with the steak. There could be more dill sauce in the world, and I think that would be great. And if you see me eating with someone and then refusing, there's a problem, right? And that problem in the early church led to some of the most beautiful descriptions of what does it mean to be in Christ. And one of the things about this chapter that's important is that we not be lazy in how we read it. So the law of God, the Torah, the first five books, the ceremonial and the civic and the moral law of God is actually not opposed to grace. I would say they are different things. And the law cannot function in the arena of salvation. It cannot make our, us right before God, but that doesn't mean it's useless. It's useless with respect to salvation. It's useless with respect to speaking peace to our own soul. But here's the thing. Because the bad teachers in Galatia were saying Jesus plus religious ceremony, we, in rejecting that, sometimes contrast these. And they're not as contrastable as they are different. And I think one of the reasons that this bothered Paul is following God has always been grace. Judaism is not a religion of works. Exodus 19, chapter 4 through 6, you remember how I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself and rescued you. When do they receive the law? The next chapter, after they've been rescued. And so Paul's, I think, so upset not only because the gospel's being distorted, but because the good news of following God was never, at first, 
about our observance of ceremony. So because the wrong teachers distorted both through combining them, we can sometimes think that the law and gospel are like apples and chairs, and they're actually more like, or sorry, are like apples and oranges, and they're actually more like apples and chairs. Dang it, I love that illustration, and I messed it up. Because is the law useful? Yeah. Even the parts of it that no longer apply to us, the ceremonial and the civic parts, tell us something about the heart of God in protecting his people from the religions outside that would encourage them to be violent and exploitative and murderous. The book of Leviticus, which might seem boring to you, read in conjunction with the book of Hebrews especially, teaches us about the holiness of God. Can the law save? No. Can it make us right before God? No. When we try to utilize it to make us right before God, what happens? It weighs us down. How then are we justified? A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Faith is relational trust. It's a knowledge of the strength and the motivation and the affection of the one that we put our faith in. If I start to stumble and one of you comes and catches me, I'll make some kind of decision in my mind about if to trust you and how much to trust you. And that knowledge will be based upon my understanding of how strong you are, literally, a little bit why you're helping me? Is it more like because it's awkward or is it for me? But that is what faith is, friends. It is relational trust. And it is the beginning of the gospel in our lives. And it is the only way that the gospel begins in our lives. So through this religious hypocrisy, we learn who saves and what cannot. And the teachers were teaching something along the lines of, believe in Jesus, trust him, be baptized, and you need a tattoo. I'm searching here for illustrations, and I'm not anti-tattoo, just stick with me for a second. But the reason I'm searching for an illustration here is in the first century, non-God followers thought that uh, the religious ceremony the teachers were teaching was barbaric and grotesque, and we don't now. So I'm trying to offer a demand. You're half saved by trusting Jesus, and you'll be fully saved when you receive the tattoo. Or, if you have a tattoo, you're half saved now, and everybody has to have them removed before you can be fully saved. It's a very imperfect illustration, but I'm trying to get to things that everyone in the room has feelings about, some for, some against, and they're being imposed by the teacher. And in so doing, the gospel has become a non-gospel. I'm not for or against. I'm stretching for an illustration here because the thing that they were teaching in Galatians doesn't bother us the way that it did the Greeks. 
already made that point. And in verses 17 and 18 and 19, I believe the point that Paul is making is when we step or slide into believing this, we distort the gospel to ourselves, and our own faith, our own sense of faith is eroded. And that doesn't mean that we're no longer in Christ. But it does mean what is supposed to sound like a gospel of freedom is now putting us into bondage. When we act like, yes, I trust Jesus, and I trust the way I physically receive the Lord's Supper. Yes, I trust Jesus and my quiet time. Yes, I trust Jesus and I've learned this way of prayer and and that saves me. That's what I think Paul's getting at in verses 17 and 18 and 19. And this is why Galatians is so important. Because we can do this in our own minds and as a church we can start to do it. You have trusted Christ received baptism, now you must learn this kind of prayer. Is prayer a gracious gift of the Father? Yes. Do you have to learn every kind of it to be saved? Excellent. Either I'm doing my job or you've read Galatians, or both, could be both. Don't fall for the false dichotomy, ever. You must trust Jesus to be saved, and you must immediately stop whatever. Nope. Will followers of Jesus increase their obedience to him over time? Yes, but it's a move first of relational trust in him, then it's a move of thankfulness, then it's obedience. That doesn't mean we don't caution people. Read Corinthians, all sorts. Like every chapter is a new sin. Paul's like, why not even pagans? Come on, people. It's still dangerous and harmful to the community and to ourselves to sin, but how do we grow in it? By trusting Christ, by continuing in thanks to him. That's why the ordinary means of grace, attending church, worshiping prayer, are so important because they strengthen our trust, they strengthen our thankfulness, then call us into obedience. But not an obedience that's the gospel, an obedience of joy. In verse 20, I think Paul's saying, I trust Christ, and my ways need to be publicly shamed and put to death because they were ways of oppression. Especially the religious ones were crushing him. Remember, crucifixion is not just horrifically torturous. It was also public shame. The powers that be saying, in your arrogance proclaiming whatever you proclaim to receive this. We're going to put you up really high on a cross and publicly humiliate and shame you. Paul is likening his earlier life and ways of doing life to that. And then he describes, I think, trying to do both and imposing it on others. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. When we start to believe and trust in our ways and in Christ, then the grace of Jesus in our lives is nullified. That doesn't mean we're not saved, but it means we're acting like a person in bondage instead of a person in freedom. And this is internal, which makes it 
challenging to preach? Who's a person that you're not sure about your relationship, your relationship with? Picture them. For a Christian, the first thing is to trust Jesus, his sovereignty and his mercy. Then it's to be thankful for what he did. Then it's to seek what may I do or not do about that relationship. The challenge coming up in your life, a decision that you're unsure about. It might look from a distance similar to a non-Christian, but for a Christian it begins with trust in Jesus, either way on the decision. Then it's thankfulness that he saved us and drew him to himself and released us from the weight of being human in our own sin. And then we turn to him for guidance. I was talking with a friend, and he was sharing with me that he's not a follower of Christ, and he was getting really emotional, and it was challenging for me because I've known he's not a follower of Christ. He's never lived like a follower of Christ. That doesn't bother me. We're still friends. I mean, it bothers me, but you know what I mean. Like, I could handle it, right? And because he's teary, I'm not chuckling because he's never lived that way. And then I was moved. And then he told me that what he believes is that everybody is doing their best and that that's good enough. And that's all we can expect from them. And friends, that is a message of oppression because you'll never learn enough to merit God's favor. You'll never be capable enough relationally to love well the people in your life, especially without knowing how essential forgiveness is. It will crush you even worse if it's through religious practices. But through trusting Jesus and thanking him regularly, corporately and individually, then we obey him out of freedom and life. If you've been at the church any length of time, you have heard me talk about what we're called into is lives of life, and it's because of Galatians. When Paul talks about life, he's using the word for a flourishing life here, one where we've received Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control from Jesus because he's pursued us in love, called us to himself, and we're thankful for that. And it's light and not burdensome. And it frees us into relationship with God and neighbor. It's from these verses that I learned that. And when we imply to ourselves or to others that it's Jesus plus, we are imprisoning ourselves. And worse, if anyone's listening to them, when freedom is available. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we believe and trust you. Would you call that trust to mind? At all times in our lives. Holy Spirit, would you guide us away from nullifying the grace of God in our own lives by trusting ourselves or our religious activities instead of you? 
Jesus, we know that the world would imprison us with false religion or idolatry. Would you guide us away from that into the freedom of trusting you, being so thankful that we can and do trust you, and then following. Amen.